By 1945, George Orwell had become a well-known and respected writer, in particular after the publishing of his novel, Animal Farm. Animal Farm felt particularly relevant and resonated with the post-World War II climate. The success that followed made Orwell a much sought-after writer and he would have no problem finding journalistic work in the coming years of his life. He would also begin on the final book of his career, and arguably his most famous. He was barely able to finish it before illness cut his life short, however. But with its release came a new staple of dystopian novel. Many would argue that it resonates to this day with other great works of fiction, and unfortunately, with a few elements of reality. What led to such an impactful novel had been an erratically tumultuous life. One could go as far as to say that Orwell had lived several lives before reaching his pinnacle as a novelist. He had been shaped by hardships and wars. He had seen the ugliness and egoism of his fellow man and also within himself. Knowing that he was nearing the end of his life, he pushed on and left us a piece of writing that still fascinates as much as it haunts. You're listening to House of Words, a podcast about authors, writers, and Big Brother. I am your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and today we're talking about George Orwell's final novel, 1984. No synopsis could do a novel with as much depth as 1984 justice. Nevertheless, here is one of many to entice and or refresh your memory. Winston Smith works for the Ministry of Truth in London, chief city of Airstrip One. Big Brother stares out from every poster. The thought police uncover every act of betrayal. When Winston finds love with Julia, he discovers that life does not have to be dull and deadening and awakens to new possibilities. Despite the police helicopters that hover and circle overhead, Winston and Julia begin to question the party. They are drawn towards conspiracy. Yet Big Brother will not tolerate dissent, even in the mind. For those with original thoughts, they invented Room 101. Every generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it, and wiser than the one that comes after it. End quote. The man who would be known as George Orwell was born Eric Arthur Blair on June 25, 1903, in Motahari, Bihar, British India, as it was known at the time. As a middle child, his sister Marjorie being five years older and his sister Avril being five years his junior, Eric did not connect with either one when growing up. This early alienation would, as it so often does, lead to a strong development of imagination. As a one-year-old, Eric's mother took he and his sister Marjorie to live in England. By his own admission and labeling, he grew up in the lower upper middle class. 
As a child, he would make up stories and hold conversations with imaginary friends. He would later explain how this feeling of isolation, as well as feeling undervalued, is what pushed him toward literary ambitions. In his writing, he could create a private world in which to find refuge from what he considered to be the failures of everyday life. With help from his mother, he wrote his first poem at age four, perhaps five. Furthermore, from as early as the age of five or six, Eric already had a feeling that he would grow up to become a writer, a prospect he would ironically try to flee from through his late teens and early twenties. The sense of injustice that later became a staple in his writing could very well have had its beginning when his mother could not afford to send him to public school and he was instead sent to boarding school at a Roman Catholic convent run by French nuns. Eight years old at the time, he would soon realize that he came from a poorer home than others. As well, he would take notice of the horrors that the school had to offer. He would be humiliated by the nuns who routinely inspected his bed on account of his struggles with bedwetting. It became such that each night before he would turn in, he would pray to God with all his might to help him stop wetting the bed. Unfortunately, as morning arose, he would, to his great dismay, find his bedsheets wet. A journal of his experiences at the boarding house entitled Such Such Were the Joys would be published posthumously as it was deemed libelous while he was alive. When the First World War erupted, Eric, 11 years old at the time, wrote a patriotic poem which was printed in the local newspaper. His talent was quite apparent. In his early teens, he would write many unfinished poems that he would later refer to as bad nature poems, written in the Georgian style. He also twice attempted to write short stories, but did not finish any and would refer to them as ghastly failures. At age 14, he wrote a whole rhyming play, in imitation of Aristophanes in about a week. He was a fast writer, and the craft came rather easily to him. Eric Blair's academic performance reports indicate that he neglected most of his studies, though he was clearly a bright young man with much to say and write about. Seemingly tired of the obvious realities that followed from being from a poor home, in particular the lack of opportunity to attend a university without a scholarship, Blair, along with his family, decided that he would join the Indian Imperial Police in Burma. He would pass the entrance exam with ease, coming out number seven of the 26 candidates who made the pass mark. Though working as an Imperial Police officer gave him much responsibility, including the security of some 200,000 people when he was posted in Twente, he found police life mostly boring and routine. He would often venture to the nearby town of Rangoon, where he would browse bookshops, eat well-cooked food, and generally simply get away. Due to this desire to get away, Blair gained a reputation as an outsider. He spent much of his time alone, reading mostly. Witnessing the final hours of a man who was sentenced to death by hanging, had a considerable impact on him. He had never seen someone healthy and as alive as he himself felt have his life cut short. The rope went around the neck of the individual, and in two minutes, 
the life of the man would be gone. Eric Blair was changed forever. It was around this time that he made a particular change to his appearance that would remain so for the rest of his life. He would change his facial hair from a toothbrush mustache to a pencil mustache. He also acquired some tattoos, including a small untidy blue circle on each of his knuckles. These circles were believed to protect against bullets and snake bites. He would later experience that this was only partly right. Luck and protection were two things he would definitely need. Ill health had followed Blair for most of his life. Since childhood, he suffered from frequent chest infections, which would unfortunately only get worse with age. Case in point, while stationed in Burma in 1927, he contracted dengue fever and was allowed to return home to England that July due to the illness. And while on that leave, in the month of September, he reappraised his life. Deciding against returning to Burma, he quit his job with the police with the plan of becoming a full-time writer. He officially left the force on March 12, 1928, after five and a half years of service. He would later draw from his experiences as an officer in the novel Burmese Days and the essays A Hanging and Shooting an Elephant. Blair admired the writings of Jack London, in particular the people of the abyss and the road, and became inspired to explore the poorer parts of London. On his first outing, he set out to the street Limehouse Causeway and would spend his first night in a lodging house. For a while, he began dressing like a tramp and even created a different persona for himself, adopting the name P.S. Burton. Leaving his middle-class childhood, he moved to Paris sometime in early 1928, where he lived in a working-class district. He had an aunt who provided him with social as well as financial support when needed. It was in Paris he began writing novels, including an early version of Burmese Days. However, nothing else survives from that period in his life. Later, he admitted to feeling like a failure because no one would publish his work. In turn, he destroyed most of his writings. Throughout his life, Blair ignored doctor's orders, especially if they got in the way of his writing. But on a few occasions, he was forced to seek help. One such incident occurred in February of 1929, when he fell seriously ill and would be taken to the hospital Cochin a free hospital where medical students were trained. His experiences there would be the basis of a later essay, How the Poor Die. Shortly after his illness, all of his money would be stolen from his lodging house, forcing him to take menial jobs such as dishwashing in a fashionable hotel. By December of the same year, after nearly two years in Paris, Blair returned to England. His experiences in the poorer ends of London and Paris, and the feeling of being a failure after no one would acknowledge his writing, would, however, prove to not have been a waste. He would finally attract the attention of a publisher and in turn have his debut novel published, Down and Out in Paris and London, a memoir of his time living as a tramp. 
Not wanting his family to be embarrassed or cast a shadow over the Blair name because of the life he had led, he decided to use a pseudonym. After a few alternatives, he eventually chose a name that he would become known for worldwide. He would settle on George Orwell because it was a good round English name, as he put it. Allegedly, he took George because of the king and Orwell because of his love for the River Orwell. Down and Out in Paris and London was published in 1933. That same year, Orwell acquired a motorcycle and went on several rides along the countryside. On one expedition, he became soaked in a rainstorm, which unfortunately developed into pneumonia. He was taken to a hospital where, for a time, they believed his life to be in danger. He did survive, however, his health would experience more setbacks in the coming years. Moving forward to 1935, love would cross his path as George met an Oxford graduate and trainee psychologist named Eileen O'Shocknessy. They obviously got along very well as only merely days after meeting, he asked her for her hand in marriage, and she accepted though it would be some time before he was making enough money for them to actually marry. Around this time, in an attempt to make more money, he took an assignment to report on industrial Britain and the working class, yet another experience that would greatly change him. Through this journey, he would see firsthand how horrible the lower class was treated and how much they struggled to survive. Returning home after the journey... Orwell was a changed man. He also finally had enough money to marry Eileen. Before heading off to Spain for the Spanish War in December of 1936, George and Eileen O'Shocknessy married earlier that summer. Ironically, the new Mrs. Blair would several years later land a job at the censorship department of the Ministry of Information in London. Having some knowledge of the details of his work, one would get the irony. In Spain, he witnessed the totalitarianism of the communists, something that would remain in his mind, biding its time until it felt right to write about it. Woefully, bad luck would once again find him. Standing at six foot two inches tall, or 188 centimeters, depending on where you live, Orwell was considerably taller than most Spanish fighters. He had been warned against standing in the trenches, but it would appear that momentarily slipping his mind, one morning, he did just that. Due to his height, he took a bullet to the throat from a sniper. He was severely injured, but luckily for him, the bullet narrowly missed a major artery and he survived the trauma. However, he would soon be declared medically unfit service. At the outbreak of World War II, Orwell submitted his name to the Central Register for war work. Ultimately, he was declared unfit for any kind of military service by the medical board. But not willing to give up, he obtained work at the BBC's Eastern Service. There he supervised cultural broadcasts to India to counter propaganda from Nazi Germany designed to undermine imperial links. This would be his first experience with the rigid conformity of office life, 
but it also gave him an opportunity to create programs with contributions from great writers such as T.S. Eliot, Dylan Thomas, E.M. Forster, Ahmed Ali, and William Empson, among others. In a flash of good news, by February 1945, he and his wife adopted a boy to whom they gave the name Richard Horatio Blair. George would also be invited to become a war correspondent for The Observer. Finally able to be more directly involved with the war, he went to Paris after the liberation of France and then to Cologne once it had been occupied by the Allies. Sadly, while in France, tragedy would strike once again. In March 1945, Eileen, at home in England, had gone into the hospital to undergo a hysterectomy and died while under anesthesia. She had not given him much of notice concerning the operation because she expected to make a fast recovery. Just a few months later, in August of the same year, Animal Farm, a fairy story, was published. In the year following Eileen's death, Orwell wrote feverishly and published around 130 articles and a selection of his critical essays. During this time period, he employed a housekeeper to look after his adopted son in his flat. Visitors would describe the flat as very bleak. It was quite clear that Orwell was drowning himself in work as a way to deal with the great loss of his wife. Adversity would unfortunately continue its course, as in February 1946, Orwell suffered a tubercular hemorrhage, although he did manage to disguise the illness. A few months later in May, his sister Marjorie died of kidney stones. He then set off to live on the Isle of Jura in a house known as Barnhill. It was there at the abandoned farmhouse that George Orwell would get to work on 1984. Still, bad luck would not leave him be. While on a misfortunate return to London in late 1946, he found himself trapped in one of the coldest British winters on record. Within the midst of a national fuel shortage, he was forced to resort to burning his furniture and his child's toys in order to keep warm. This, along with the heavy smog in the city before the Clean Air Act of 1956, as well as his unwillingness to seek medical attention, only served to accelerate the deterioration of his health. He would, however, soon enough return to the house in Jura and would continue work on his novel. Quote, All writers are vain, selfish, and lazy, and at the very bottom of their motives there lies a mystery. Writing a book is a horrible, exhausting struggle, like a long bout of some painful illness. One would never undertake such a thing if one were not driven on by some demon whom one can neither resist or understand. End quote. George Orwell's uttermost desire when it came to literature was to successfully make political writing into an art. His starting point was always with a feeling of partisanship, as well as a feeling of injustice. Although art was the objective, when he would sit down to write 1984, as he had done with most of his books that had come before it, he would not forge ahead with the idea of writing a piece of art in mind. 
Rather, he would focus on the lie he wanted to expose or the fact he wanted to draw attention to through the story. He felt strongly that subject matters were determined by the age a writer lived through and saw this fact especially validated when it came to the revolutionary ages he had lived and suffered through. Orwell, as goes without saying, was greatly shaped by his experiences. On one hand, living with the poor in London and Paris, becoming fully aware of their existence and their struggles, increased in him a natural hatred toward authority. On the other hand, his work as an officer of the law had given him some understanding of the nature of imperialism. Moreover, the Spanish Civil War and Hitler's regime had further solidified certain emotions and made him question others. All of the above had planted the seeds that would turn into a desire to make political writing an art form. Throughout his career, he attempted to write more exactly and less picturesquely, though it would be a struggle because he loved language and prose. Animal Farm was the first book where he attempted to fuse, with full consciousness, political and artistic purpose into one. After completing that novel, he felt sure that his next book was bound to be a failure. He knew what kind of book he wanted to write, but was nevertheless certain of that failure. Though the inspiration for 1984 was an accumulation of thoughts and feelings he had experienced throughout his life, it seems as if he found the perfect plot in someone else's work. That work would be Yevgeny Zamyatin's novel We, which Orwell reviewed in 1946 for the Tribune. Though he found the novel rather weak and episodic, he did find it relevant to the social changes happening around him. Zamyatin's novel is set in the future, in a city built of glass in order to enable the Big Brother-like government to more easily keep an eye on its people. The plot centers around a man and a woman who fall in love and rebel against the system together, much like in Orwell's book. 1984 would be published three years after the review. Though little is known about his writing habits or routines, Except that he wrote on a typewriter, one can assume that he followed the rules and advice he provided for other writers in his 1946 essay, Politics and the English Language. A scrupulous writer, he wrote, in every sentence that he writes, will ask himself at least four questions. Thus, one, what am I trying to say? Two, what words will express it? Three, what image or idiom will make it clearer? Four, is this image fresh enough to have an effect? When reading his books, and in particular 1984, one can find obvious signs that he did indeed follow his own advice. The six rules of writing, according to Orwell, are as follows. Never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. Never use a long word where a short one will do. If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Never use the passive where you can use the active. Never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And finally, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. George Orwell's later years would only be plagued by more and more illness. 
In the summer of 1947, he nearly lost his life while trying to cross the notorious Gulf of Corivrecken on a boat and received a cold soaking which was the opposite of beneficial to his health. In December of that same year, a doctor pronounced him to be seriously ill and soon after diagnosed him with tuberculosis. This, however, did not hinder him from continuing to write the novel. He was able to return to the house in Jura by the end of July 1948, and by December, he finished the manuscript. 1984 would be published in June of 1949 to immediate critical and popular acclaim. The literary world had found a new legend in the depths of dystopian fiction, but unfortunately, he would be lost soon thereafter. From a hospital bed, George Orwell married Sonia Brownell. She had known him for five years and married him in a bedside wedding as his health deteriorated. He would not leave his bed again. He would not be around to see how big of an impact his novel would have as a mere seven months later, an artery burst in his lungs, killing him on the morning of January 21st, 1950. He would leave some final words concerning the novel before his death. I am not absolutely dissatisfied with it. I think it's a good idea but the execution would have been better if I had not been under the influence of TB when I wrote it. His final words from his deathbed were allegedly, At fifty, everyone has the face he deserves. George Orwell died at the age of forty-six. In 1984, his novel, 1984, along with Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, were honored with the Prometheus Award for their contributions to dystopian literature. In 2011, he would receive the award once more, this time for Animal Farm. The New York Times ranked George Orwell second on a list of the 50 greatest British writers since 1945, and in 2016, a statue of him was installed in front of the BBC in London. His birthplace and ancestral house in Motohari is now a historical museum. He has undoubtedly had an effect on our language. He's changed many minds and to this day has an effect on readers who choose to pick up his books. Is he still relevant today? Some would argue that indeed he is, as his book 1984 is considered by many to be even more relevant in today's world. It could be argued that he was correct or at least eerily close about some of the predictions he made in the novel. This makes the book an important one, as well as a great one. It can teach healthy skepticism and mistrust. It could teach one not to be a blind follower. However one chooses to reflect on his body of work, hopefully what most can take away from Orwell is the fire with which he lived and the need he had to create explore ideas, and push the envelope. I will leave you with one final quote from the man. Circus dogs jump when the trainer cracks his whip, but the really well-trained dog is the one that turns his somersault when there is no whip. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, 
Jason Lemore Harden. I, along with the creators of this show, ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Lemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Harden.